I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 8, continuing or really picking up where we left off last week. And I'll read uh, verses 1 down through 11 just to give us some context for what we're looking at. So Philippians 2, we'll begin reading at verse 1, looking at verses 5 through 8, and let's pray before we do so. Our Heavenly Father, we are delighted at what we see in this passage, particularly in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that as we study these things, that this wouldn't be mere intellectual head knowledge, but that our lives also would be changed as we live in conjunction with other Christians, that we would bring you glory and praise by our unity with one another and our like-mindedness and accord with uh, not just each other at hope, but with believers all over the world. We pray that you would grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Philippians 2 at verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus far, the reading God's word may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning. Last time we uh, noticed in verses four uh, that Paul is after the unity of the church, like-mindedness among believers in the church, and likely for the sake of uh, being a faithful witness, which he talked about in Philippians chapter one, the spread of the gospel, which is what he was all about. And we noticed some of the ways that we are not of the same mind when we have rivalry, a spirit of rivalry and of conceit or empty glory, trying to find glory in man-centered ways through the praise of other people and the following of other people, uh, rather than looking after others' interests. And I want to just remind us that pride is inherently competitive. So when we are not humble, lowly-minded, we will be those who are rivalrous. Uh, we will be those who are competitive. Pride is competitive and therefore it's divisive. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. It gets pleasure out of having more than someone else. And so a church that is filled with believers who are proud is a church that is has every reason to assume it will just split apart and disintegrate into nothing. We actually need the opposite humble mindedness in order for us to have church unity. Pride is also 
selfish. It's just all about self. It's about me and my needs, my interests, not anybody else's interests, but I'm more significant than everybody else. And therefore I have to look out for me for number one. And, uh, this can actually manifest itself even in negative talk. And we might think that pride, the, the, the true mark of pride is someone who goes around boasting about who they are and all of their accomplishments and how great they are. But pride can actually manifest itself in us talking negatively about myself. Oh, I'm worthless, I'm nobody, I'm nothing all the time. And the way it's manifesting itself is again, it's all about what? Me, 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 I, I, I. I want everybody talking about me either positively or negatively. And Andrew Murray said this regarding pride. I'm afraid that there are many who by strong expressions of self-condemnation and self-denunciation have sought to humble themselves, but who have to confess with sorrow that a humble spirit with its accompanying kindness and compassion, meekness and forbearance is still as far off as ever. Being occupied with self, even having the deepest self-abhorrence can never free us from self. Tim Keller put it really short and pithy. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You could argue that it's actually both. But the point is, is that pride is selfish. I'm number one, and therefore I want to be talking about number one, and I want everybody else to be talking about me, even if it's negative talk. And the third thing I want us to notice is that pride is just a massive human problem. It's a problem every one of us is dealing with, whether not a believer or as a believer. As a believer, we're actually dealing with the problem. We're growing in this. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. And C.S. Lewis viewed uh, pride as such a massive human problem but he said this, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's a big step too, at least nothing, whatever can be done before it. It's one of the things we have, we have to admit or deal with, or come to grips with as believers, is that we are by nature proud. The Holy Spirit's implanted a new life in us. We have a new heart. And it's going to take work, spiritual sweat, to actually work through pride and grow in humility. It's something every one of us as believers is supposed to be working on. Now, last week we looked at the specific command for us to be unified through humility. And this week, we're going to look at the model of humility. So Paul tells us, look, don't, don't be motivated by rivalry or conceit. Put others' interests first. Think more highly of others than you do yourself. Commands are pretty straightforward and easy to understand. But then he adds a model. He's going to show us exactly what this looks like in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And before he walks through the life of Jesus, he says this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's literally, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So now he's going to show us the attitude or the mind of Christ. And he's telling us, I want the mind that was in Christ also be in you. I want you to think the same way Jesus did. I want you to have the same attitude that Jesus did. So here, Jesus is being held up as our model for humility. Now, I want us to notice just four things. What is the mindset or the attitude of Christ? I want us to just walk through four things. First of all, he's God. 
Secondly, as God, he emptied himself. Third, he's man. And then as man, Jesus died. As the God-man, Jesus died. I want us to notice those four things because it helps us understand his humility and how this can have bearing upon our lives in the church. So first, Jesus is God, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice the phrase form of God. The word form is literally an outward expression that embodies essential inner substance so that the form is in complete harmony with the inner essence. So what he's saying is Jesus is unequivocally, completely God. Outwardly and inwardly down to his very nature uh, is God. He in the form of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Christ who is the image of God. Colossians 1.5, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the irradiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Or John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So here in Philippians 2 and elsewhere in the passages we just read, what Paul is saying is that regardless of what you think of Jesus Christ, all the details you want to think of him, you have to conclude this as a believer. He is God himself. He is God in the flesh. He is not the first created being. He is not uh, just seeming to be like God. He actually is God. So when Jesus was claiming, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he was not lying. He was not a lunatic. He's saying, look, I'm the Lord. I'm God come in the flesh. Not just merely a great teacher, a great miracle worker, a great prophet, but actually God entering in his creation into this world. And notice also the language equality with God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, the word equality is the word isos. We get isosceles triangle and isometric. So identical uh, is the word for this. So he did not count equality with God or being identical with God, something to be grasped. Again, if ever there was a passage which declared that Jesus is God, uh, Philippians 2 verse 6 is it. Now I want to, this isn't really a side note or a rabbit trail, but something which directly relates to this. We could go a thousand different directions with this, but I want to highlight something. Every religion, every uh, every false religion which masks itself as Christianity, which says that Jesus is not God, is just a false religion. I want to clarify that in the minds of our young people especially. I remember reading, I think it was the uh, Mormon doctrine, or it might have been Jehovah's Witness doctrine, on a, it was on a, a road, we were actually touring a place, and they had 14 cardinal teachings, 13 of which we were nodding, yes, I agree. And the 14th of which had to do with the Trinity. And it was so subtle that you could almost say, we don't believe any differently than these people do. And it had to do with who Jesus was. They said, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the, he's the firstborn creation. He was created by God. Everything was made through him, which sounds very similar to John 1.1. 1, 1 but yet so subtle because they're saying Jesus is not God. Christ is not eternally pre-existent with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There was a day when he was not, and then he came into being. And as Christians, we say the Bible teaches very clearly 
that Jesus is pre-existent with the Father and the Son. He has always existed, and he is God himself. And so you come across a teaching or religion which says, well, we believe that Jesus is a great man. We believe that he's the, the pinnacle of all creation. You have to press a little farther. Who is Jesus? Is he God or not? Well, no, we don't think he's God. Okay, well, I just, then you're just part of a different religion. <laughs> then there's no possible way that what you're teaching has anything to do with Christianity because in Christianity, what has always been clear from the very beginning is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, a second thing I want us to notice from the passage is that as God, Jesus emptied himself. Verse seven, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there's much debate about what took place here. Some have said that Jesus emptying of himself is Jesus actually ceasing to become God. So he emptied himself of his divinity and just took on humanity. But again, that means we don't have a God-man anymore. We just have purely a man. What historic Christian theology has taught is that this emptying took place through addition. That the way Jesus Christ emptied himself was by taking on what? Well, what is written? The form of a servant. He took on human flesh. That is how he emptied himself. So being in the form of God, he actually veiled himself, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. That's the emptying. And you've noticed in the Gospels, like the Mount of Transfiguration, it's like for just a moment, that flesh just kind of unveiled itself and out came the deity with a little bit of a flash, or maybe even in the Garden of Gethsemane when all the soldiers were knocked over, some have surmised that there was Jesus showing something similar to the Mount of Transfigurations, which is how you can get 600 Roman soldiers to fall flat on their butts when they've come to arrest him. But whatever the case, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the way he's emptied is that in his divinity, he has actually taken on humanity. That is lowly. For God to take on humanity, that is a massive step down. That is emptying of himself. The fact that nobody around him found him impressive in appearance or in form is testament to the fact that Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking on humanity. One scholar put it this way, the pre-existent son regarded equality with God, not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. So why did Jesus do this? He could have said, ah, quality with God is something that I'm going to hold on to. I'm going to grasp it. I'm not going to let go of it. But he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to and grasped and not given up for the sake of our redemption, but actually viewed it as something, you know what? I can leave all the praise of heaven all the glory that is resounding to my name, and I can go into the earth, the world that was created through me, and experience rejection and sorrow and tears and hatred and go all the way down to be crucified. I can do that. I am uniquely qualified to do just that. 
So that's what our Lord Jesus Christ did with his divinity, beloved. That was what the decree of God had for him. That is what he signed up for. I am fully God, and I sign up to humble myself to take on the form of a servant to redeem these people. Our God is entirely different than other gods. This is just incredible to think about. In the world of track and field, this is a world I'm sort of familiar with, although that's fading as I get older. In the world of track and field, being forgotten and being remembered forever is usually measured by tenths of a second and centimeters, the smallest of distances. So, for example, if you're a long jumper and you can jump as a male 830, 27, 28 feet, you're good, but you'll be forgotten. But if you can just add about 25 centimeters and hit like 895, which is about what the world record is, all of a sudden you are easily remembered forever. If you can run a 9.99 meter dash, you're good. You're, nobody's catching you other than about maybe 20 people in the world. But if you can run a 9.58, just four tenths of a second faster, you are the best that ever has been. If you can shot put 22.5 or six meters, you're incredible, but you'll be forgotten unless you can throw 23.3 meters and get the world record. What do you do with someone who shows up and shot puts from Iowa to Maine? What do you do with someone who can go from the start to the finish in the blink of an eye? What do you do with someone who can jump not eight or nine meters, but over the moon, literally? You stand and you marvel. The being, the creature, the creature, not the creature, the being, the God-man in the flesh, when he comes, is so unique, beloved, so out of this world in a different category, hard to even describe and depict, other than use the language of Scripture to, to just repeat what it says that when we see what he does, it ought to cause us just to marvel. This is God through whom everything was made come in the flesh into this earth for our sake. Whoa! This defies all categories. This, this means Jesus isn't just my secretary that comes alongside to help me with the administrative tasks in my life and give me a little bit of a boost. This means that Jesus Christ is somebody worthy of my worship. He is an altogether exultant, unique being. And what he does, I ought to pay careful attention to. And what he does has tremendous bearing upon my life. There's no way we can treat him like any other human being. Thirdly, I want us to see in verse 8 that Jesus is man, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So, so now we've gone from the heights of heaven, all the glory. Jesus, look, I don't have to grasp or continue to hold on to that. I can empty myself by taking the form of a servant and looking and being in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So he had a belly button, he had hair, he had armpits. He had a brain, he had a heart, he has organs that are functioning, 100% human. I'd like to ask my kids, is Jesus, is Jesus fully human or fully God? Is he 100% God or 100% man? Of course, we all know the answer. Well, he's both. The math doesn't line up. 
Is he fully God or fully man? He is fully both. It's, it's hard to even wrap our minds around exactly who Jesus Christ is. Which is why people say, well, is he operating according to his divine nature in this episode or according to his human nature? And we can parse that out a little bit and have a little bit of fun with it. But ultimately, we have to say he's operating according to his uniqueness. <laughs> he's both God and man at the same time doing, doing things that just blow our minds. He is a human being. He is human, fully human. Matthew 1, he was born to an earthly mother. Matthew 21, he was hungry. John 19, he was thirsty. Matthew 4, he was tempted. Matthew 16, he underwent pain and suffering. Matthew 27, he died. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, took on flesh just like us, except he didn't have any sin. So he's what the first Adam should have been, but failed to be. That's who Jesus is. He's the second Adam, God come in the flesh. And why does he have to do this? Because unless he becomes a human being, we can't be saved as humans. If God was going to save oak trees, then he would have had his son, would have had to have his son come and be an oak tree. Because God is saving human beings, we are made in his image, not oak trees. Then Jesus had to become everything we are, except without sin. He had to become fully human. Because as Gregory of Nazianzus put it, that which is not assumed, that which God doesn't become, cannot be healed. In other words, we need to have God become man in order to deliver us. If he's not fully human, then whatever he has not fully become in us is not redeemed. And then we're 90% redeemed, but the part he didn't become, we're stuck in. So we're not quite all the way saved. So he became fully human. Don't underestimate the power of incarnating into the worlds of other believers as a form of humility and service. I realize that may sound trite because we're dealing with something, but I want to put this in perspective here and we'll conclude with this too. Paul is holding up Jesus as this incredible model of lowliness of mind, or in your ESV translation, in humility, which is in lowliness of mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ. Tremendous power, God himself coming all the way down. What did he do? He incarnated into our world. He entered our world. He got to know our world. Tested, tried, hungry, suffering, tempted. Just without sin. Jesus Christ has tasted of every aspect of our weakness. That's humility, beloved. Don't underestimate the power, the value of incarnating into the worlds of those the Lord's called us to serve, to taste their life, to taste their experiences. That's humility. I take everything that God's given me and I put it in service to someone else. A church filled with believers doing that, powerful. All the ingredients of being able to be a united church. And then finally, we'll conclude with this and then uh, notice a few things. Verse eight, as man, Jesus obeyed to death. As the God man, Jesus obeyed all the way to death. He went all the way to death. Take a look at verse eight, but not just any death. He actually went all the way down to the cross. Now, 
is hard to fathom. Jews would call somebody who is hanged on a tree, someone who's cursed by God, the lowest form of humanity. Crucifixion for Romans was for those who were regarded, at least at that moment, as likely less than human, so much so that Cicero said decent Roman citizens shouldn't speak of the cross because it was unfit for them to even ponder that kind of murderous death. It was like a four-letter word. It was like just the lowest form of humanity. So Jesus goes from God all the way down to death on a cross, which for the Jews and the Romans who were watching this, they would have said, this guy's not even a human being. Surely, surely, all of his claims were bogus. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the I am, Jehovah himself, who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3. There's no way that's possible. Look at how low he is. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As the God-man, God taking on human flesh, he didn't just become like us, but actually went down to the most accursed spot in the world. Which caused C.S. Lewis to write this, God is not proud. He will have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And on the cross, that was made plain as day clear. Who wants this man? Who will fight for this man? Who will deliver this man? Even Pilate, who got pretty close, said, ah, just you guys deal with him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. A lot of other people hating him. That's how low Jesus Christ went. D.C. Egner recounts a story he heard about two mountain goats who were on a narrow path that was one mountain goat wide. And on the downside of the cliff was about a thousand foot drop. And the mountain goats couldn't get around each other. It was too steep up, which is pretty steep for a mountain goat not to be able to climb up. And so one goat actually bent down and the other goat was able to go over top of him and then they could pass each other. And he used that to illustrate this truth of what Jesus did. Like we are stuck between our sin and God's righteousness. We have no way to move forward. And Jesus Christ humbled himself and got down on the ground so we could go over him. He did this incredibly humbling work, the work of his humiliation, so we could be saved. Jesus didn't think the cross too low to go. We might view our service to other people as, you know, uh, it's a big deal for me to get down and wipe the feet of somebody else or clean up their puke or change their diapers or you know, help somebody who in their older age is just all bodily fluids everywhere. That's lowly work. What do you do when God does that? When he leaves heaven, as it were, not the throne, he doesn't cease to be God, but comes down here into this world and takes the lowest form of humanity and goes all the way to the cross. What do you do with that? One thing that we have to do with it is this. We can never regard any work in this world or any work in the kingdom of God is beneath our feet. It's not possible. There is no service. There is no foot washing. There is no poop manure cleaning. 
however we want to word it, too low for a Christian. In this world, people will think there are things beneath them. That's beneath my dignity, beneath my humanity, they might say, beneath my worth that I should not have to stoop down to do. But when you've seen the King of kings and Lord of lords stoop all the way down to the cross to take on himself all of our filth, the things we don't even want our neighbors, our spouses, our best friends to know about, and take all that filth and pay for it and suffer for it so that we can be forgiven of all that filth and stand in his righteousness. If that's what our king has done, then there's no work beneath us. If Jesus didn't think the cross too low for himself to stoop, then what excuse do you and I have for thinking too highly of ourselves? What excuse do we have as professing to believer, as, be, as professing believers to walk around and think of ourselves as a pretty big deal? I hope a passage like this puts pride in proper perspective because pride when it exists in us is just the ugliest thing in the world. It just, it, it looks just gross, looks horrible. I hope we'd see our pride in that light, that we wouldn't laugh at it and pass by and say, oh, it's no big deal. You know, it's just me being human. No, it's just, it's so sickening. Why? Because you look at Jesus Christ and pride just has to, it has to just die a death a thousand times over in our hearts and in our lives. John Calvin put it this way, since the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. Now let me conclude with just a couple things. What does such a humble person look like? Uh, again, I'm drawing from C.S. Lewis. He's really helpful uh, in this and Andrew Murray in his book, Humility and Absolute Surrender, C.S. Lewis drives this point of what a humble person would look like if we met him. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, schmarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about a humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's what it looks like, and obviously the model for that is Jesus Christ, who came down here looking not for his own interests, but ours. His interest is the glory of his Father, our salvation. And then we might say, well, I want to know if I am that humble person. The humble man, Andrew Murray wrote, feels no jealousy or envy, no competitiveness, doesn't mean we can't compete in sports, that's not the point. But no envy or jealousy toward others. I have to have what they have. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten. Because in God's presence, he has learned to say with Paul, I'm nothing. He has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor as the spirit of his life. So let me ask you this, beloved, as I ask myself and sort through my own heart too, where are we at with this? Are we the kind of people who are lowly-minded, who take all of our gifts like Jesus did, all of our being, all of our resources, and put them in use to serve other people like Christ, who took all of his glory, all of his Godhead, 
and put it in service to us in our sin by washing our feet in the lowliest spot. Is that how we use our gifts and talents? What has God given to me? How can I use it for the well-being of others and for his glory? That would be a humble servant attitude and mindset. Or are we using our gifts and all of our talents and resources and everything God has made us and has given to us to say, people should be serving me. People should be doing my bidding. People should be praising me. How is it with you in your heart? We've all got to sort through this for the sake of the church locally, but also for the sake of the church broadly all over the world. Let's pray.